Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your other host, Jack Neflin. Thank you for joining us for issue 13 of our comics bracket. We are finally in the semifinals. This week, we will be discussing 2002's Road to Perdition, as well as 2011's Cowboys and Aliens. And this is it. At last, we've hit peak Daniel Craig. We are into the Daniel craig verse. What Jackson is trying to say <laughs> is that Daniel Craig plays a significant role in both these films. Mm-hmm. He is Connor Rooney in Road to Perdition, as well as the main character of Jake Lonergan in Cowboys and Aliens. One of them is a truly fascinating character, the other is Jake Lonergan. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the differences between... Uh, his two portrayals but first a little bit of housekeeping for those of you who preferred not to listen to our previous episode due to trigger warnings the crow has moved into the semifinals, and in our next episode we'll be going up against teenage mutant ninja turtles before we get into discussing these films individually i think it's very interesting and also serendipitous that we happen to have these two films up against each other mm-hmm. they have a lot in common they're both homages to westerns but not they're both starring daniel craig they're also both taking a comic book narrative and attempting to create a prestige film out of it specifically very pulpy comic book narratives one of these is uh, more successful in that than the other but also i think one of the comics is much more conducive to that than the other right and let's, let's get into that. Let's just do a compare-contrast thing for once. So Road to Perdition was a sort of a pulpy homage to Lone Wolf and Cup uh, by Max and Collins, and it was just, you know, a dude and his son shooting some dudes. That was kind of about it. Yeah, it was very heavily based in, like, gangster noir trappings. It is technically historical fiction because the comic book actually uses characters who really existed besides just Al Capone. It also uses the Looney Gang based off of Rock Island, Illinois. Whereas Cowboys and Aliens is also very pulp. doesn't have any illusions of being based on history and is just sort of this wild ride. On the very first pages, we get what this comic is all about, and it's taking a really close look at the colonialism that is involved in the Wild West, and specifically contrasting that with the colonialism of the aliens who then invade later in the comic. I get why Road to Perdition felt like it could be a prestige film. It definitely prospers from that. It prospers from taking this fairly rote premise and bringing it into a space of having complex themes, using strong actors, taking advantage of the opportunity of a simple story to have complex visuals and themes and uh, symbols, that kind of thing. It's also a period piece. Whereas Cowboys and Aliens, making it a prestige drama was a mistake. Sean Favreau has even come to admit this. He was on an episode of the WTF podcast and specifically talked about it and how him having just come off of work on Iron Man in 2008, he felt that that was going to be the bomb, whereas him working on this was kind of supposed to be this really evolved work for him. And it just didn't work out that way. People were expecting a much more comedic film. And to a certain extent, he's not wrong. And I'm kind of sad about that. I mean, the Iron Man films are pleasantly pulpy while having a level of sincerity. And I wish this had that same level of fun and sincere. Well, why don't we go ahead and start digging in a little deeper. Let's start with Road to Perdition. Okay. So, Road to Perdition kind of started as a Spielberg film-ish. Spielberg was the spider, the back of all of this. He read the book and was like, hmm, yes, 
I want this on film. I started disseminating the comic to various people in the industry like Tom Hanks and Sam Mendes, etc. Just poking them until they started making the film that he wanted them to make while he was too busy. And of course Tom Hanks is there because it's Spielberg. And they all kind of had the same mindset of like, okay, this is good, but what if we do something artsy with it? So the writer David Self, the director Sam Mendes, the cinematographer Conrad Hall, who I praised a lot last episode we talked about this, and even Tom Hanks were all like, what if we do this, but as mature adults saying something? And while that could have really easily gone into a level of pretension, it doesn't. So they took a lot of this pulpy violence and made it into something where all the violence has some meaning and a reason to exist and tells a coherent story. And I think it worked out really well for them. For being a gangster film, the violence is incredibly restrained. There's only maybe about a dozen instances of violence throughout the whole film. And there are a lot of ways in which they were kind of using this opportunity to see what they could do with the premise. Like there's a lot of on-location shootings, a lot of stuff shot in Chicago and in Illinois towns and that kind of thing. They use a lot of real snow, real rain, real mud, that kind of stuff. They did a lot of cool stuff like shooting on some archaic film to give it a slightly more granular vibe and covering lights with silk to make it a little bit more to, to add more of a shadowed feel to the, to the light. That also makes sense based off of the source material, which is all black and white hatchwork art. So that film grain texture adds some of that texture that's in the original drawings and the heavily light and shadowed scenes are reminiscent of the black and white artwork without going full sepia tone. It has a very muted color palette and that's intentional. Like they both a lot of sets with muted colors, that kind of thing, but it doesn't feel like it lacks color. It's just that the, the colors happen to all work out to be like that, which takes a lot of effort to make it all happen that way. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. And it means when we do get color, like on the farm scenes, they're very fun and vibrant and feel relaxed, whereas all the quiet, somber grays and blacks of the more violent scenes have more impact that way. Now, we were talking about violence just a little bit earlier. There's a lot of discussion about this film and how it associates water with death. Mm-hmm. This specific watch through, I went through and made a note of every single time we see a person die and whether or not that specific scene or location is associated with water. And it's about a 50-50 split of whether, yes, it's associated with water or no. After taking a look at it a little bit more deeply, I realized that for the most part, the deaths that are associated with water are ones that Michael Jr. specifically saw or interacted with in some capacity and the other ones are where michael jr is not necessarily aware of those deaths i've noticed a lot of the ones that are murders are associated with water part of the reason for that is the director wanted to express the idea of water as this uncontrollable force like you think you can control it contain it to glasses or plumbing or whatever but in the end water will always escape and corrode and run free and in the same way you can't really control violence no matter how much you think you can, which is a nice metaphor. And I feel the water shows up in a lot of different ways. Rain, puddles, even snow. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a body on ice. There's a few scenes with rain. Um, there's two murders that happen in the bathroom, either during or just after a bath. There's even one where a photo of a body is then being developed in photo development liquid. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Nice. I have two more trivia things I don't really have a thesis for. I just want to include them. Do you want the fun one or the weird one? Weird one. Okay. So in an interview with Tom Hanks, he talks about how the reason the film was so affecting for him was that if you're a man and you've got offspring, it's devastating. I don't like the term offspring for children. It feels very much like people who refer to women as females. I guess. I don't know. Part of it may be my uh, love for the band The Offspring. As so. With a thousand eyes and a good disguise in a right between. 
by maybe uh, rose-colored glassing. Mm, sure. All of that. But no, like, I totally get it. I, I've talked previously before about how it makes sense that it really affected him because two of his sons at the time were pretty much exactly uh, Michael Jr. and Peter's age. Mm-hmm. That is kind of the problem I have with the film. Tom Hanks is America's dad, and that applies to this film too. Like, Michael Jr. talks about how... Some say there was no good in him at all. And I never get that. I never think of him as someone who feels irredeemable or I worry about teetering on the edge of being a truly wicked man. He seems to be sad and able to do violence, but never like a monster. That doesn't feel to me like a story of a monster being redeemed by caring for his son. It's just a person who does some violence, getting closer with his son, but not changing all that much. Yeah, and honestly, I would fault that more for the narration than anything in the film. Oh, for sure. And again, we've talked very much how different Michael senior is in the source material than he is in the film after that softening they've changed the way the film is structured a little bit and they've changed the dynamic between michael jr and michael senior enough where that all works pretty well i think it wouldn't bother me so much if it wasn't a part of the opening narration this whole like this is a biopic about michael jr if the opening narration had stressed the idea of breaking out of cycles or becoming your father or the inevitability of death or something that could have been a much stronger thesis for the film that wouldn't have made me have these questions it doesn't really affect the main story but if the film is presenting this as the main conflict and then the doesn't deliver on that it makes the film weaker the film kind of contradicts itself throughout the film we see michael jr reading a lone ranger novel one of the first times we see it he's reading in bed with a flashlight as peter is interrogating him as what's papa's job he works for mr rooney but what's his job and we see cowboys in black hats, cowboys in white hats, as he's trying to describe to Peter what Dad does without him having a really good grasp on it either. He goes on missions for Mr. Rooney. They're very dangerous. That's why he brings his gun. Sometimes, even the president sends him on missions. Because Papa was a war hero and all. You're just making that up. I am not. When Connor goes in to murder who he thinks is Michael Jr. and Sarah, he is disguised in a very similar manner to the bad guy in Michael Jr.'s novel. Mm -hmm. We also see it pop up again when Michael Sullivan is meeting with Nettie in Chicago, and he is hidden Michael Jr. away in, I believe, a train station. And we, we once again see that Lone Ranger, and the film is very much trying to associate the Lone Ranger and that persona is this is how Michael Jr. perceives of his father as this vigilante, but an inherently good one. And that illusion doesn't really get broken mm -hmm. as much. I mean, there's definitely elements of it, but there's not like a end of second act thing where he's like, oh, my father is a monster. I will go off on my own. And they have to reconcile before the big finale. And the film doesn't really get into Michael Jr. being an unreliable narrator either. Speaking of Sarah, for time reason, they had to cut a few of her scenes where she was being more motherly towards the kids, you know, building up that character, those relationships. And I'm kind of sad because I don't feel that lost that much. Oh, it's actually Annie. I keep saying Sarah, it's Annie. It's Aunt Sarah. It's Gosh, now we re-record the whole thing. Great job. We're going to edit this all. We're not going to edit this all. Anyway, Annie, their mom, as you can tell, we're not that invested in her as a character because she doesn't really have that many scenes and a lot of them are scenes where she's interacting with other characters in ways that lead to their relationship with other people instead of just their relationship with her. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel her loss as much as I think the film wants us to. I still get it. I don't, I'm not saying it feels cheap, but she's not one of the, like, the great mourned mothers like um, Joyce Summers or whomever. 
I'm honestly kind of glad that we don't get much of Annie in the film because a lot of the scenes with Michael Sr. and Annie in the comic are hashtag not great. No. I'm glad that the film just kind of decides to, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. Another thing I found really interesting on this watch through, we get Finn and he gives a speech at the wake and he pulls out this paper from his pocket and he's reading it. And the first time watching through, I'm like, okay, he has that because he is nervous about public speaking. Blue collar guy, doesn't deal with crowds, not terribly charismatic. Makes sense. On a repeated viewing, my reading of that scene's changed dramatically. It's not so much that he needs that piece of paper to feel comfortable in front of that crowd. I think it's very likely that that's the script that Rooney specifically gave him. This is what we approve of you saying at the wake. Don't deviate. Interesting. I think it's a good reading. The one I had was that that's what he wrote. And then when he finishes, he kind of goes off book. He wasn't planning on saying that, but he's had a bit of drink and now he's letting out more than he's supposed to. Mm -hmm. I think both are valid reads. And the thing I like about some of these scenes, we don't necessarily have concrete answers for all of these. And I think your version makes Old Man Rooney a bit more sinister and mine makes him a a little bit more sympathetic. And I think that's also fine. Mm Mm-hmm. Quick thing, describing it doesn't help you much, but there's a great montage of Michael Jr. getting better at being a getaway driver where the camera slowly pans right and keeps panning right through a dozen or so scenes of different bank robberies and other intermittent bits. And the camera speed stays more or less consistent while we're jumping from scene to scene and seeing the progression of Michael Jr. and Sr.'s skills as bank robbers. And it's a really great composition. It's a really fun montage. And I like how blatantly artificial and comic booky it feels in its having this very crisp, clear frame. I wouldn't even necessarily say it feels comic booky. I mean, there's a very similar thing that we talked about in our last bracket with Moana as, mm, yeah. as this directionality specifically being a shorthand for progression. Yeah. And it works really well here. It's used in a much more limited sense, but it works for that one specific montage. And also brings a lot of energy to the film at a time when it really, really needed it. Yeah. We talked before about the pacing of the film and this watch through, maybe I've seen it, you know, three times now in the span of like two months. I'm kind of like, oh, oh, this first act is so heavy and the the tone is pretty consistent. Uh. So that montage helps a lot, bringing some levity. There's a big problem with a lot of the middle of the film. We don't really get into a lot of the meat and fun stuff until about two thirds of the way through the film after they get attacked at the diner and they decide, yeah, we're going to rob banks. There's not really a great way to fix that either. You need to have a lot of scenes that happen more or less exactly the way they are, and there wouldn't really be time for any levity for a good 20 to 30 minutes of the film. And so I'm not sure where you put that in to help with attention. And even some of the opening levity at the wake is, you know, at a wake, so it's still a bit subdued. So there's this one really interesting scene the morning after Michael Jr. witnesses the hit. Rooney arrives at the Sullivan household unannounced, and Michael Sr. and Annie are inside, and he's like, What's he doing? Michael was hiding in the car when I went out last night. And then we cut out to Rooney talking with Michael Jr. And using the framing of the betting that they were doing at the wake with the dice. Our secret, right? I'm talking about the dice. A man of honor always pays his debts and keeps his word and whatnot 
and specifically giving Michael Jr. his silver dollar that he earned at the wake as a pretense for making sure that Michael Jr. isn't going to talk. I thought it was really interesting the way they're trying to frame Rooney as this man of honor, so to speak, even though his entire empire is built on duplicitousness. Honor most deeds is definitely a thing that culture understands as being a thing. Yeah, and it also is kind of specifically there to differentiate him from the way Connor acts. Old Man Rooney is a really good example of lawful evil. Mm -hmm. That also brings up a really great bit from Old Man Rooney where he's finding out that Michael Jr. has seen this hit and... That's tough, seeing that for the first time. Implying both that he has a mindset where people will probably see this many times in their life and also that this is kind of a natural thing that somebody sees for the first time, the way you know we might think of losing a loved one for the first time. Yeah. It's a really warped mindset that really kind of shows you how lost this man is. When we get to the whole... None of us will see him. We get up. This guy has resigned himself long ago to this fate that he has for himself, yeah. unlike Michael Jr. There are only murderers in this room. We're just going to keep using that forever. Um, so good. Like, our next bracket is going to have a way to work that in every episode. <laughs> yeah, there's also, specifically after that, he talks about Michael Sr. seeing it for the first time, and, like, you turned out okay. Uh, <laughs> did he? Did he? <laughs> well, in Rooney's eyes, he did. He is a perfectly loyal soldier. Yeah, I guess. Oh, man. I So, I like old man Rooney a lot as a character, and you keep bringing up ways in which he's not actually a good man. Uh, <laughs> how dare you ruin my image of this sweet, kindly old gangster. It's okay. You just need to imagine him on a bottle of salad dressing. I Newman's own. It's a brand. Paul Newman plays John Rooney. Okay, that was a stretch. <laughs> not that much of a one <laughs> if I was someone who knew salad dressings. However... Shockingly, I don't. (laughs) (sighs) Well, with all of this grinding to a halt, why don't we go ahead and shift gears? For a transition, why don't we talk about the thing that the movies have in common? They're Daniel Craig. What uses this Daniel Craig better, do you think? I would just like to point out that these films came out almost 10 years apart. Mm -hmm. Daniel Craig is attempting an American accent in both of these films. Remind me. Which little Sullivan are you? One of them is much more successful than the other. You're gonna tell me what I'm charged with? I will readily admit that the voice that Craig used for Connor is probably not going to be a good voice for Jake Lonergan, but his accent is all over the place. We've talked about that before, to the point where he's interacting with a character with an Irish accent and just completely (laughs) loses it. It's like, oh, I know this accent, and just (laughs) responds back in a brogue. Hollywood wants Daniel Craig to be this, like, charismatic lead, and I think he's he's not. He's much better at playing a heel as he is in Road to Perdition, and I think if they played up his not-goodness in Cowboys and Aliens, that would have helped. If he'd been a villain protagonist, that would have been fine because he can do heartful, unwashed socks, soulful of gunk, but he can't really do this sweet, charismatic lead as well. Yeah, and I guess they kind of tried to give him an edge by making him a uh, outlaw with amnesia to try and play into that. And when he's trying to be pre-amnesia Jake Lonergan, I think those are some of his better scenes in that film. They are. They should have not have had amnesia and had him be just a black hat who happens to be the one who can save the world. Let him be Han Solo. Well, he can't be Han Solo. Harrison Ford's in this movie. You can have two Han Solos. <laughs> As we've proven, having two Han Solos only makes things better. It's a nice song. Um, what? I don't have people. I'm alone. Um, solo. 
That said, Chaplin only does get points for me for having a lot of Daniel Craig showing off his uh, uh, acting chops. Listeners at home cannot see you pointing to your your chest and abdominals. Uh, wow, but Daniel Craig sure went to uh, went to Juilliard. Um, and with Juilliard, I mean the gym down the street. I honestly think that's more of a reason that he is at the spot that he is. Mm-hmm. He is definitely like leading man material because he is pretty looking and he can do the action scenes and whatnot. He's kind of like this more serious Jason Satham. Or uh, like a lost Chris. <laughs> Any Chris. We've already ragged on Daniel Craig for being a terrible choice for leaning man in this film, mm. even in previous episodes. So let's go ahead and move on to someone who I think was perfectly cast. Paul Dano as Percy. You know what, Preacher? You just gave me an idea. I know it ain't Sunday, folks, but what say we take up a collection for the poor man? Huh? Come on. In the hat. <laughs> yes. He's having a great time being this schmarmy arsehole. Yeah, he is just the epitome of trust fund cowboy in this movie, and it's so good. Trust fund cowboy is uh, my favorite Mountain Goat album. I'm gonna bribe the officials. I'm gonna kill all the judges. It's gonna take you people years to recover from all of the damage. I think I'm sad about him is that he has a lot of lines at the start, like these lines. You ungrateful for our business? Because if it wasn't for my pa's cattle, there'd be no money going through this town. There'd be no meat on your tables, and your doors would be closed. And it'd be really cool if those came back to bite him in some way. Like if, for whatever reason, we saw the aliens doing that, or he was subject to that at some point, or someone like used those as an ironic reprise at the end or something. But it doesn't really come up, so it's just kind of him being a swarmy jerk without any significant payoff for the specifics, and you could have used those in a more concrete way. Yeah, unfortunately, so much like him and so many other interesting characters get removed from their narrative after the abduction, and we don't really get anything from them from until the end. I think if instead of the whole oh they're hypnotized and just sitting in this cell sort of thing, they were like conscious and like held in a brig and were trying to do things on the inside to escape and intercut some of the film with that, I think that would have been incredibly interesting. I have the same concept, but with the aliens not having a mechanical way to mine the gold so they just have a bunch of people mining things for them perfect also imagine that character who's this entitled trust fund cowboy having to work in the mines and how that would be a really good fall from grace for him you can also see taggart trying to kind of take him under his wing and make sure that he stays out of trouble and doesn't get himself killed by the aliens yeah exactly and that would be a way to give these characters a bit of agency and development while still having them be people who need to be rescued yeah it also means that maria gets more screen time which i believe we all would want yes it would also on the flip side add more characters to this narrative which they're already kind of a lot we've talked about how we don't really need them all here i would just cut a lot of the stuff that goes on with jake's gang yeah specifically after the whole showdown and the aliens show up again i really think that that scene feels really weird and like it doesn't belong in the film All of the other scenes that we get with the aliens are like full on monster movie sort of things. Like everything's darkly lit. We don't know exactly what's going on. But this is just like a battle slash dogfight in broad daylight. And it just seems really off brand for the aliens that we've got. It seems like they needed a way to get out of that scene so they threw some aliens at them. Yeah. Which, I mean, I've dungeon mastered before. I get it. But 
it seemed like it was just a way to get them out of the scene with the bandits and get to Octavia Butler, like, injured so she can die in the fire. Yeah, and I think... Olivia Wilde, not Octavia Butler. Different people. That would be a very different movie. Yeah. And I think you could have just had it where it was the Apaches who attacked. Yeah. It also introduced them a little earlier. They wound up capturing a lot of the main hunting party anyway, so it would just get that scene out of the way faster. Also, because of the amnesia, you have Lonergan having to pretend he knows what's going on when he doesn't, and it doesn't play off that interestingly because there isn't really any payoff where he doesn't know what's going on and messes up. It would have been a lot more fun if uh, he if we found out here that he was part of this bandit gang or there was some tension about him going back to them there's no tension of that scene where i think oh no he's going to betray everybody while we're talking about pacing i also really want to talk about the opening scenes of the film we start off with landscape pans and then all of a sudden daniel craig sits up breathing heavily and doesn't know what's going on travelers on horseback come up try and get some information out of him and there's a fight and he's looting the bodies after that and then we get the title card and he rides toward absolution skulks around there a little bit and then things don't really pick up again until we start getting plot dumped with his conversation with meacham the preacher it's a mining town well that was the notion people moved on though gold you amp things up because that fight scene at the beginning is really interesting and compelling like there's a lot of action going on we're like okay how does he know how to do this he takes on three guys with firearms barehanded and they're all on horseback yeah so he's obviously incredibly skilled mm-hmm. and then we're just left with all that adrenaline and those unanswered questions for way too long the momentum of the film is completely him mm-hmm. and part of that is because we need to set up all these characters we meet in the town And they are all in their own ways a bit more relatable than this person who has amnesia, has incredible martial skills, and is a rough and tumble cowboy. I'm only one of those things. It's not super relatable, whereas Sam Rockwell is a business owner who just wants to do right by his wife and feels kind of inferior. And Percy is this trust fund cowboy, and the the preacher is a good man in a bad town. These are all like interesting, compelling things I think we can all glom onto in more ways. Yeah, I honestly think a more interesting thing would have been he gets woken up by like the dog licking his face and he's on the outskirts of town same sort of situation and doesn't know what happened or even just have him wander into town just start with the credits playing over this guy's walking very slowly from the middle distance yeah sorry we're doing a lot of here's how it fixed this things yeah but here's how it actually fixed this turn up the gosh dang brightness So I discovered the VLC has some settings where you can up the brightness and contrast and things amongst other settings like turning everything red or making the movie into a puzzle that you can solve while watching it. That's a fun thing. Anyway, a thing you can do with VLC, the media player that we both use, is turn off the brightness and contrast. And so I use that for basically all the scenes at night and suddenly I can see everything happening. I can see the fight scenes. I can see the aliens. I can see this lovely town at night and I can see the interior of this upside down boat and my eyes aren't straining to figure out what's going on and shifting me from observance mode to calculation mode and taking me out of the narrative and when that's happening I'm having a good time I'm able to enjoy what's going on and experience it properly and I think that if they brightened this movie I would have liked it a lot more this whole time 
the more I see this and I think about it, when they saw Cowboys and Aliens, they didn't think, oh yeah, Western plus space opera type th deal. They thought literally cowboys go up against a xenomorph. That's, I think, one of the big reasons that we got the aliens we did. I think that's the reason that we got the really poor lighting in all of the night scenes. Well, when you have the brightness up on the boat scene, admittedly, it gets a little bit weird because there's just isn't that information. So it looks like you're watching something from the 70s that hasn't been transferred that well from VHS or whatever. But you can see all this detail of the set that some set designer poured their heart and soul into. And you're like, wow, look how beautiful this all is. Look how much effort was put into this. Completely lost when you watch it the standard way. And I'm really sad because like, it looks beautiful and I like looking. You know, this weird interior that they built. Yeah, this upside down paddle boat. Mm -hmm. With painting on the walls and broken furniture yeah. everywhere. Visually, one thing I do appreciate about the film is the orange teal color coding going on. So we've talked about this being a very orange and teal movie and kind of what that means in a previous episode. But rather than just being that aesthetic because it was popular at the time, the filmmakers decided to do something interesting with it. And they specifically use the orange and teal to code the film as orange is this is traditional western this is completely understandable everyone understands what's going on here there's not this alien weirdness and then as soon as you get those blues and greens on screen you know oh something's wrong something's we see that in all of jake's flashbacks we see it when dollar hides cow hand falls into the river during the first attack we see it in the attack in the boat as they're trying to figure out what happened to all of their people and i think it's really effective way to use that aesthetic that was popular at the time and make use of it as opposed to oh everyone does this so we're also going to do it Mm -hmm. And I mean, the only blue in a Western is probably going to be from the sky, which makes sense because from whence the aliens come. Mm -hmm. It also means that when Olivia Wilde is reconstructing her body from the fire, she has this orange glow, which makes her feel, because of the color coding language, like she's part of this earth, part of this like natural thing that should be here, mm -hmm. which is cool. The way she is framed at the beginning scenes in Absolution to cast her as this outsider while Percy's on his tirade and whatnot are incredibly similar to the way that Nat is framed. They're both off in the distance. They are the only people in the shot when they're shown. They don't have any lines for a good portion of that scene. And it kind of established both of these people as outside observers. They're not really part of this culture. Now, for people you know, on their first viewing, you don't know what's going on. It's like, oh, well, that's because she's the woman as opposed to she's an alien. Mm -hmm. And Nat, because he is Native American and not white. Which, again, reinforces the main aliens in this narrative as being the colonial invaders and the people who are being invaded as being analogs to indigenous Americans. Mm -hmm. With her being reminiscent of, like, a tribe who was maybe further east who got wiped out in the first wave of colonialism. Mm -hmm. That gets into muddy territory with her being a white actress and all that jazz. The symbolism isn't good in the first place. Let's not bother with it. Let's, what we can bother with, we're not about whitewashing, is Noah Ringer, who there isn't much to say about him. We talked about him a little bit before. How he's kind of a superfluous kid character who was kind of maybe the indigenous kid character from the comics but not really so it's kind of messy but if you want to look at him as an example of whitewashing you can because he's also an example of whitewashing in the last airbender that's or, his other big film where he played ong ong <laughs> my name is ong and i'm the avatar 
he was higher belt than Clancy Brown, wasn't he? His name appears earlier in the credits. It goes Noah Ringer, Keith Carradine, and then Clancy Brown. They really hoped he was going to be the new Daniel Radcliffe, and he was not. Yeah, and while I will admit that his acting is definitely better here than it was in Last Airbender, it is still not great. No one has good acting in Last Airbender. Bring me all your elderly! No one has good anything in Last Airbender. <laughs> We've kind of talked about how we really wish that this film was campier. And every now and then you get little bits and snippets. A lot of them are associated with Sam Rockwell. I do want to point out some of the lines that I saw as indicative of that sort of understanding of the material. And if they would have leaned into those sorts of things more, I think the film would have been more successful. Like when Jake Lonergan is dealing with his amnesia and getting sewn up and being interrogated by Meacham the Preacher. Eventually, Meacham gets exasperated. It's like, just what do you know? English. And that's kind of more in line with his comic analog, who is a lot of fun. And Dollar High even has a really good line when he's interrogating his cow hand. It's like, what kind of a man goes around blowing up other people's cows? There's also a really good line when Jake comes back and decides to actually help them look for the aliens. Him and Dollar Hyde have a bit of an argument, and uh, Sam Rockwell's character, Doc, just goes, Can't we just be happy the guy with the big gun's back? I did appreciate that, but again, because we don't have that campy of a narrative, it feels a little bit like it doesn't fit in that well. Yeah. And I'm sad because it, it could have. Yeah. We just needed a few more of those scenes, and a drastic change the aliens would have been needed to. In the rewrite of this movie that I was working on in my head while watching it, because God, it's a slow movie, that was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Just make the aliens something. Anything. <laughs> I think I, I'm i ready to do our final vote. Yeah. Shockingly, I think I'm probably going to vote for 2 Road 2 Perdition again. <laughs> Road 3 Perdition. No. No. <laughs> This movie does not need sequels. Road to Perdition, Ireland Drift. I also am going to vote for Road to Perdition. I really, really want to like Cowboys and Aliens. I, I see a lot of really good stuff going on. And I understand the impulse to try and take this comic and make a very artful film with it. I don't think that this story was terribly conducive to it. Road to Perdition is, and it was really successful in that regard, and it it definitely gets my vote moving forward. And unsurprisingly, it's moving on to the finals. To figure out what else is moving to the finals, you can check out our next episode, where we'll be talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Crow, two films that are very different from what we talked about this week, who very much embrace their campiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, Spotify, and basically anywhere you catch your pods at this point. Also, for all of our loyal listeners, I really appreciate you. And we also would like to point out that right now is the middle of March Madness, at least for those of you in the U.S., For those of you who are not in the U.S., it is also still March Madness, but you might not. Which means everyone is really getting an itch for filling out brackets. So now is a great time to share a podcast with your friends, acquaintances, co-workers, mortal enemies. (laughs) And we really appreciate spreading the love. If you've really enjoyed us, if you could give us a share, shout out, what have you, we'd really appreciate it. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.